0: Welcome to this week's episode of Strict Legal on WESN Content Capital. I am your host, Rondell Donoa and once again, I'm happy to bring the law and you. I hope you're doing fine, and you, the viewing and listening audience, uh, of course, you can stream us on WESN CC, as well as our podcast, Strict Legal with Rondell Donoa Of course, today, you can, um, you can send in your, your questions. Um, sorry, you can send in your questions if, um, if you're watching live on our Facebook pages uh, because today we're going to speak about the understanding the criminal trial process and exactly answering your questions in terms of evidence, um, CCTV footage that has been obtained from the police as well as a bystander and how, um, and how pretrial publicity works. Uh, Of course, I have none other than Mr. Fareed Ali, attorney at law. Um, He's no stranger to the strict legal set. So I would like to bring him on. Um, Fareed Ali, good morning. Good morning, Rondell. It's a pleasure to be here. How are you? I'm good, <laughs> good, I'm good. I hope you're doing well too. Good, good. Yes, yes. So thank you again um, for you know, for agreeing to come on um, uh, because you, are, you you explain um, the law in, in its very simplest form. And of course, this is a program um, dealing with the layman and explaining the um, various types of um, legal principles or legal practices. And today we are going to speak about um, understanding the criminal trial process. I mean, there are a lot of things persons may not know about how trials are, are run. Um, most important Sometimes you find that persons also opposed to, or the citizens are opposed to, why is it that certain offenses, um, persons get bail and all these various um, scenarios. But of course, can you just break down or describe how the tr- criminal um, division of the, well, of, of the judiciary works? Well,
1: if we look at the court structure, um, we have at the most basic level what we call the magistracy. Um, those are the magistrate's courts that are stationed in the districts in, in which each district in which persons live. So you may find citizens, you live very close to a court, you may know, you know well, the Tunapuna magistrate's courts is here, there. Um, once a matter is a summary offense, it can be treated right there, at the magistrate's court. Um, normally an offense has to be tried in the district in which the offense took place. So if it is there was a, a robbery in Tunapuna or a robbery in San Fernando, you can't have what we call cross-jurisdictional cross-juris- um, trending of the matter. The matter must be dealt with in the district in which it occurred. So in looking at the, the criminal jurisdiction, more serious offenses tend to be dealt with at the, at the high court and the less serious at the magistrates court. And that happens at, at, at every level. If, however, you get a decision in the high court that you're not pleased with, you're free to appeal the decision in the same way that a few days ago, uh, in February of this year, the high court ruled in relation to Bail and and as it relates to remanded prisoners and and murder and capital offences, the state was not pleased with the decision. They appealed the decision. It went to the Court of Appeal. The Court of Appeal ruled in favour of uh, the bail being awarded for persons in remand for murder and the matter was appealed at the Privy Council level. So there's a structure in the criminal justice system and there's a structure as it relates to criminal matters.
0: Now, of course, in the magistrate's court, a lot of times you, you, you hear, as you said, um, summary offences. Um, the, the public may not know what, what are summary offences. So just explain what are examples of some summary offences that are heard in the
1: magistrate's court. Well, let me, let me refer to the police standing orders. There is what we call a police standing orders. The police standing orders is a guide. It's a guide that trains the mind of a police as how generally he should, he should structure his daily activity in terms of his work. Um, it's not law to say a police must follow the guideline, but it's, it's simply an outline as how things ought to be. Now, within the police standing order, standing order 28, it defines the, the levels of offences. You have offences listed as minor, minor crimes, serious crimes, and minor offences. Um, in terms of the structure of Summary offenses, a lot of summary offenses are contained in the minor crimes area and a lot are contained, the majority are in the minor offenses. So some minor offenses would be like loitering. You see someone 2 o'clock in the morning walking, the police stop and ask you where you're going, you can't give a proper explanation. You may be charged for loitering if it, you cannot offer a reasonable explanation. You may have things like breaches of the peace. Somebody's in the marketplace, in San Fernando market, San, San Juan market. They're misbehaving, they're using obscene language. The police comes and calls you and says, listen, you're in a public space. You ought to conduct yourself in a different way. So you could be charged for breach of the public peace. These are summary offenses. It doesn't require any jury to make a determination. You go to court, the charge is read, to you. You plead guilty or not guilty depending on the charge. Um, the magistrate asks you um, whether you're willing to go to trial on this issue or whether you want to concede. You could even plea bargain in that instance. So there are summary offenses, simple offenses, liquor license. You're selling beers in a place, no license. Mm-hmm. right? Yes. A lot of people sell beers out of styrofoam containers on a Friday evening. That, those, are, those are summary offenses because you ought to have a license to sell liquor. Um, you might find uh, persons who enter hunting wild animals, and you don't have a license, a hunter's license, that is a summary offense.
0: And, the, and, and, and we have seen um, during the pandemic um, with the COVID-19 regulations, yeah. um, where, um, failure to wear masks and, and all these various things. I mean, yes, it it's a fixed penalty, but of course, if you challenge it, it forms
1: part of the um, a summary offense. And that is a serious issue. The, recently, the Ministry of National Security revealed that they made some $32 million in mass fines. That $1,000 that persons had to pay if they were in breach of the regulation, oh, two thousand, they amounted yeah. as much as $32 million. Sheridan Hill, the communications officer for the TTPS, recently made an announcement. Suddenly, the dialogue is no longer bre- people who breached the regulations. It's people who committed minor offences. So not wearing masks and breaching the regulation came under that category of a minor offence. What people may not know, and just as an aside, those persons who were, for, were found to be in breach of the regulation and had to pay those mass fines. It being a minor offence means that they are now criminally convicted, they carry convictions for breaching the regulations that is going to weigh against their names. It has not been clarified in the public space from the attorney general's office whether those fines and those breaches of the regulation will be treated in the same level that a traffic ticket offence would carry. Indeed. So, so we may find a lot of persons out there should be checking themselves now in yes. terms of whether I am I am capable of getting a certificate of good character. Indeed, and and of course, while we are
0: sticking with summary offences, magistrate of your city to determine, um, facts. Yes. Right, and um, and based on facts and of course um, evidence, they can now make a determination. Yes. Yes. Um, in in terms of their remit, when it comes to um, when it comes to the sentencing. Um, what sort of guide do they use when, when they
1: when they sentence on some offences? Well, we have what we call the Criminal Sentencing Handbook in this country. Um, it was first published in two thousand and six, and then there was a re- there was a, an amendment in twenty sixteen. Um, that document serves as a guide to magistrates as to what. Category of offences carry certain sentences. So, like manners and similar manners, meaning a robbery involving a firearm, um, causing injury to a person, may carry a jail term of, let's say, ten, closer to 10 years. But in sentencing, a magistrate will not or may not extend the full hand of the, of the law in terms of a heavy sentence if it is they consider certain peculiarities. For instance, They may look at the youth of an individual and see that he committed a serious offense, yes, but he was 17 years old, or he's 19 years old. In other words, if you send this man to jail, he's going to lose the best years of his life, the roaring years of his life. So
0: therefore, that is where we deal with uh, mitigating factors. You look at um, the mitigating factors. You
1: look at the age of the individual. You look at their history of criminality, whether it's a first offense or second offense, whether they have a predisposition to commit offenses of a violent nature. Um, So a man may have a conviction for for smoking marijuana. But that is not a violent offense. It's not a crime of violence, but robbery maybe. So if it is he comes before the court on a robbery charge and the court has to sentence him now, when they look at his criminal record and see that he's been convicted for minor offenses, they may extend a lighter sentence. It, it, it all depends on aggravating and mitigating circumstances. How serious your crime is, is is one factor. The history and antecedents of the individual, they're about to sentence in terms of whether he has a history of criminality. And they, they, they perch and trend the sentence based on the individual, not generally based on the crime itself. Right, and, and, and now moving into the high court
0: jurisdiction. Of course, the, um, the, or the players, especially yeah. in, in high court matters, particularly in criminal jurisdiction, are the, the, ju- the judges. Um, the, and also, you have jury not so, as well as judicial um, so officers, which includes the attorneys representing yeah. um, the prosecution as well as defense. Um, now tell us, now, uh, there are legislation which now um, provides for where um, trials can be um, elected um, without a jury. Um, just explain the process in terms of what trials that can, um, does have jury and what trials that you can elect not to
1: have jury. When we have what we call serious criminal offenses, such as... And according to the standing order, again, standing order 28, it it points out some of the serious offences would be murder, conspiracy to murder, manslaughter, um, attempted murder, attempted suicide, uh, shooting and wounding with intent. These are serious offences. These offences generally um, are what we call indictable offences. Indictable offences is a a big word to to reflect that it's serious. And um, when you have an offence that is indictable or serious, A choice is given to the defendant before the court, the accused before the court, as to whether he would like to be heard before a jury or if it is he would prefer a judge alone trial. Um, The the problem we had during the COVID period is because of the two year layoff and we were having uh, trials of of a limited nature, not too many trials. A lot of persons who were sitting in remand opted for judge-alone trials. They're telling themselves, if it is we sit here in this jail waiting for, this pan- for us to get out of the pandemic where we can bring juries and bring persons back into a courtroom, um, I may be just losing another two years of my life. Now, these judge-alone trials are for all indictable offenses or specific? Does it include murder as well? It includes murders. And a popular one would have been simply the Sean Luke um, trial recently. That, that was a judge-alone trial there was no jury to make a determination in, in, in that instance. So the, the choice lies with the individual, whether he's willing to allow a, a judge to make the decision in relation to his innocence or guilt, and to also make rulings in relation to law. The difference is this, it's simple. When you have a jury of one's peers, the jury makes the determination as to facts. They hear the facts, they hear the witnesses, they make a determination based on the believability and the credibility of, what they, of the witness they're hearing from. When it is the, the jury has an opportunity to deliberate, they don't carry the bias that one may perceive a judge may have. Um, they may not carry the bias that a, a highly educated, tertiary educated person may have. So the person sitting in the jury might be uh, a gardener. It may be simply a plumber. It may be somebody who works as a kind of helper a CSR in a store. So it's, other words, it's simple people on the ground level who make practical decisions based on fact. So somebody may feel safer having somebody like themselves on their level, their rank and file, make a decision concerning their future rather than put it in the hands of, of, of an aristocrat, as a judge, somebody who they perceive to be not capable of understanding and relating to them as a person. So the, the, the benefit of having uh, jury trials is that the factual issues are dealt with by the jury, whereas the judge, he listens to the law. The jury would sit in and hear what the opening arguments are, they would hear what the witnesses have to say in terms of the witness arguments, they would listen to the uh, submissions before the court, and they may listen to the closing arguments and then make a decision. There are times when the jury will be excluded, when there's a legal issue to be discussed, meaning that the judge has to to rule on whether some evidence is admissible or whether some evidence isn't admissible, whether they want the jury to be exposed to this sort of information. In other words, the judge monitors.
0: Yeah, monitors. He monitors and and
1: regulates what the jury hear because they may not be able to process the finer points of the law. And you don't want to corrupt their mind in terms of confuse them. So you you limit them to factual issues and let them rule on factual issues. And the judge gives some directions. Don't be confused if you hear somebody. If you found that during the the, the trial process, Rondell was lying, there there are lies that could be condoned in a courtroom. So there are directions he can give. And say. sometimes when a man lies, it's not that he's lying um, to be malicious. He might be lying to protect himself in terms of he doesn't want to be seen to be in Tunapuna or seen to be, in a certain place at a certain time. he have a wife. He doesn't want his wife to know where he was. So he lies about issues that don't touch and concern the facts and the matter, that don't touch and concern the innocence and the guilt of the individual. So you can, the, the judge gave the direction, when you found him to be lying there, he was not lying about an issue that touched and concerned the core issues in the matter. He's lying about something that doesn't touch that. So he tells the jury, don't judge him and say everything comes from his mouth, therefore it's a lie. Yeah. So these are the, some of the, the practical directions judges give.
0: Now, um, no, there's a concept in law uh, called preliminary inquiries. Right, and um, could you just explain in terms of why is there a need for a preliminary inquiry, particularly when someone gets arrested for a serious offense? I mean, I do know that um, the, first, the first point or the first place that, that an arrested person presents themselves um, is through the magistrate's court. Yes. Um, could you just tell the public why is it that they have to present themselves, or why is it that the, the, first, the first court that they go to is the magistrate's court versus the
1: high court, even well, if it's an indictable offense? Every offense that takes place must be heard in the district in which it took place. So there are serious offenses that come before the district court and the magistrate he is a creature of statute. There's what we call the Magistrates' Act in Trian and Tobago. That act determines how a magistrate can act and what a magistrate can do. When you are dealing with serious offences, serious offences involving murder, the magistrate cannot make a determination as to innocence or guilt because the act doesn't allow for magistrates to make a ruling in relation to uh, innocence or guilt in, in a murder matter. So, some serious offences have to be dealt with at the High Court level and what they do at the magistrate's court level is have a preliminary inquiry. What happens at the preliminary inquiry? The role and function of the magistrate is to listen to the evidence, watch the witness, hear what the witness is saying, the, the, the magistrate now will listen to the, the facts of the case. They will have a first-hand exposure to the different kinds of evidence being presented, whether it's CCTV footage, whether it's DNA, whether it's forensic evidence of some kind. Um, they will also look at whether it's fingerprint evidence, whether it's identification evidence. So in a trial process, what that magistrate is doing is they're looking at all the evidence, and based on the evidence, if they believe that the police factual uh, scenario, the police, the, the facts derived out of the investigation points to some case that that individual may be involved or some factual uh, scenario that somehow incorporates the individual, meaning that the magistrate is of the view. You know what? I am not here to determine innocence or guilt, but I believe that Rondell Donahue or Farid Ali has some involvement on some level in this, and that the police investigation did bear fruit that he has some information that could assist, and that would have caused the charge to be laid. She may say that the fingerprint evidence is tying him to the, to the offence, though he is saying that the identification was faulty and, and that the individual who saw him wasn't describing him. He was describing somebody who could be just about anybody else, a generic description. Yes, he's an African male, but there are hundreds of African males out there, but the DNA evidence may be tying it to this particular African male or this particular indo trinidadian So the magistrate at that point may say, you know, the identification evidence is weak, but the fingerprint is strong. The witnesses may have been sh- shaky in terms of the civilian witnesses, but the formal witnesses in terms of the police officers and the expert witnesses, they were strong. So I think generally, let's send the matter before the high court, commit him to stand trial. He will, be served, he will be remanded in custody at the nation's prisons, and an indictment will be served on him in this country. It may take as much as 10 years, mm-hmm. but the indictment will be served upon him, and he will answer to the high court and a jury. So the, the, the preliminary inquiry is really a pre-trial hearing to determine whether it this matter is worthy of going before a judge and a jury, whether it's worthy to go, of going to trial. But wasn't but wasn't it, um, I, I
0: recall that there were legislation, proposed legislation to abolish PIs, or preliminary inquiries.
1: How, how far has that gotten to? The last, the last, Reference that was made in relation to preliminary inquiries is the Attorney General, the then Attorney General Faris Alwari, in January of 2022 indicated that he would like some feedback from the Law Association and from the Criminal Bar with regard to their views in terms of the elimination of the preliminary inquiry. And everything fell into abeyance since. Right. We haven't heard anything in terms of what is the development. Um, the, the idea behind removing the preliminary inquiry is that they were developing other ways and means of vetting the evidence because basically the preliminary inquiry was a formal forum in which all the evidence would be vetted. What the, at least six years. Right. What the, what the Supreme Court did and what the Chief Justice and they did in terms of introducing other ways of vetting the same evidence is introducing this, the concept of masters and registrars at the High Court. Yes. So you have masters of the High Court now. They have been inserted into the Supreme Court level. And what they do is rather than you swamp the magistrate's court with, with a host of preliminary inquiries, you lead the magistrate court to deal with simple minor offenses, what we what we were terming minor, minor offenses earlier, Breaches of the peace, um, exposing oneself in public, uh, any sort of simple quarrels, simple fights, these things can be dealt with at a very limited level at the magistrate's court. But with the master, the preliminary inquiry now will be handed, into, handed over to the master. The master will look at the, at the statements, and the master now will be able to make a determination based on reading the documents, whether we can commit this individual to stand trial or not. So in other words, the preliminary inquiry is, is, has been eliminated, or well, the view is to have it eliminated eventually yeah. in order to free up the, the, the movement of matters from the magistrate's court to the high court.
0: All right, um, Farid, uh, I know there's a lot to discuss, but we have to take a break. Um, you're watching Strict Legal. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You're watching Strictly Legal with my guest, Fareed Ali, um, speaking about understanding the criminal trial process. Um, now, Farid, let's touch on evidence. Let's, let's touch on the why is evidence, I mean, obviously it's an obvious question, but why is evidence so important in, um, in let's deal with the criminal proceedings?
1: Evidence is a direct byproduct of a police investigation. The reason why the police investigates a complaint is to determine whether there's information out there that they can tie the offense or the alleged offense to, to a person. If it is you, our investigation reaps no return, like in trying to be good, it is being said, it's in the public space that we have an 18%, percent eight percent detection rate. So it means to say that the investigations in this country, um, the chances of it being tying it back to an individual, it's, it's weak. And that is why with this, the high levels of criminality we may find exists and subsists within our country. Now, the the thing with evidence is this. There are different forms of evidence. Evidence is like a puzzle. And at the end of the day, if you have 100 pieces in that puzzle, if it is you you only have three, you could only put three together, link three together, then it doesn't show the the complete panoramic picture that you wish to tell. Now, you may have different forms of evidence. The best evidence against an individual is this confession. So when it is a man is brought into the station and the first thing they say, yes, I stole, yes, I thief, yes, I rape, yes, I kill, Uh, the police their job is easy because the best evidence against a man is his own words yes
0: um, but then when they go to before trial, and then they will change, and then they say where well they were cursed.
1: Well, then, then we get um, into procedure. Yes, we get into procedure. So when it is a man confesses at, at the station, we confess before a police officer. The first thing the police officer does is he, he takes out he takes out his pocket diary if he has one, or he, he takes out his sheets of paper and he makes a note that at 9:05 p.m. on the 27th of July, 2022, I had a conversation with Farid Ali. He confessed the killing. He confessed the shooting and um, they put the details, as much details as I give, and they make a note. Then they ask you, Mr. Ali, you're agreeing that we made a proper representation of what you just said here on paper, and they ask me to sign. Then a senior officer who witnessed that, will, 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 he will sign under my signature. So then they use that as evidence that there was a confession. They make an entry in the big diary that you see when you enter the police station, and they make entries in other forms, pocket diary, desk diary. And when these, the, the collation of these, these entries, that speaks to evidence. It's evidence of a confession, and there's a written log of it. You have different forms of evidence. You may have scientific evidence, DNA, when they take swab samples, somebody's um, spit saliva, and uh, when they take these swab samples, they check for DNA in that. They check under the the, the fingernails of of a disease, um, to see if it is you get skin tissue because if the person struggled with the other person that they, they may have gotten Swabs of or scraps of skin from the individual they fought with and if you could check the DNA take now extract it out from the saliva Of the suspect and it matches the skin tissue under the nail of the disease Then we have scientific evidence. We may have fingerprint evidence Where a man may say well, I was never in that house, but his fingerprint is all over the house mm-hmm. So how do you explain being inside you're not spider-man? Mm-hmm. So at the end of the day? Um, We look at different forms of evidence. We look at the evidence of of an IC witness. There are different forms you look at. If you say, I saw a man while I was standing by the San Fernando Magistrates Court, exiting the the San Fernando High Court, the Supreme Court, you have to say, well, I saw an Indo-Triadian, slim built, clean shaven, right, around five feet four, and and then you, you proceed to describe. If the description is generic, meaning just all I just said is it fits the description of any number, any hundred men, You may say, well, he has a scar over his his, his right eye, he's missing a front tooth, he has a chip on his front tooth. So you look at the identification evidence also under the lighting conditions. You didn't identify him at 2 o'clock in the morning, you identify him under heavy lighting conditions, bright sunlight, 9 o'clock in the morning. You look at the distance that the observation was made, there was nothing obstructing his vision. So identification evidence is very strong. We live in a country where the people who are committing crimes sometimes are your neighbors and your friends. So you have what we call a verification exercise, which is a different form of identification where we don't need to formally have eight persons standing, fitting the same description behind a one-way mirror and you go to identify the person who you think looks like the the perpetrator. You may say, it's my cousin. I grew up with him. We sleep in the same bed, we eat the same food and we have the same siblings to, to, to interact and fight with. Well, let's, so that's, you have verification evidence. And, and
0: let's discuss in terms of video evidence. Now, we have seen in, in high-profile shootings where police has, um, has informed the public or, or, or put out a release that they've had... um. CCTV, official CCTV footage yeah. of, of acts that were committed, but they cannot release it to the public because it can prejudice the trial. However, um, or, they, or they justify why is it that they would have done what they did. And the, however, um, in, uh, in the contrary, you would see that eyewitnesses will have another piece of evidence. Um, that that, that basically debunks what the police are saying. Now, how do we treat with with official CCTV evidence from the police and whether or not they have the authority or whether or not
1: their views of not releasing it before trial is, um, is valid? The police are under no obligation and the Ministry of National Security are under no obligation to release video footage that may compromise the integrity of our investigation process. Um, they have a responsibility, an outlying responsibility when it is you have CCTV footage or footage gathered from cameras on the, on the street to keep that secure. Um, the security purposes is this, it's tied to whether, if a matter has to go to trial and we release into the public space video footage of Farid Ali running down the road um, with a piece of wood in his hand, running down a woman, running down a child, the, the public perception having seen the video footage, would be one of this man is guilty. It may not be he's running the individual down who just uh, robbed him of his, of his items and he's running to make a citizen's arrest. The opinion that is formed is man running down child, man running down woman, piece of wood in his hand, evil man. So what we, that is what we may see, may, may even touch so far as what we may call uh, pretrial um, publicity yes. that may adversely affect how persons perceive and, 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 and consume and interpret and digest what they're seeing. So the, it's within the ambit of the police to withdraw footage from the full view of the public and allow it to be feature in the investigation and allow it to feature in the courtroom. However, um, CCTV footage is very effective. It's, it's evidence that may be admissible in, in a courtroom. I why say maybe? It's up to the, 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 the sitting magistrate or the sitting judge to make a determination as to whether the sanctity of the footage is acceptable. You have to... A police officer must come and say, where did he get it from? I got it from a camera situated on the corner of Queen Anne Henry Street, Port of Spain. Um, the extraction of the material was done in a particular way. We used a clean CD. We, we used a flash drive that was not corrupted. Obviously, you have the After Lady Foundation yeah. to, to, to admit that evidence in the court. Yes. Mm-hmm. And once it is done in its proper fashion and we trust that the police would do that, then it may be admissible. But you that is the difference with when you have video footage from ad hoc items like mobile phones, when civilians do that with their phones, yeah. the, the sanctity of that footage could be doctored. So that is why it is we, we rely less on public cameras and individual phones as opposed to official but, CCTV But, 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 but then we have
0: seen that, that, that individual phone footi- um, camera footages have propelled investigations into criminal, um, criminal activities, particularly with police um criminal activities right
1: and when you have individuals who do these who, who have footage from their own personal security cameras at home and their phones you can go to the police complaints authority and file a complaint and they will test the sanctity of that footage and whether it's reliable it's unreliable and it's not just the video footage that the, the, the police complaints authority may rely on they may be relying on other statements taken from other individuals who may be willing to offer by way of a signed statement what they see and the marriage of the of the footage that they gather from random sources plus statements would assist in terms of piloting a matter, piloting an investigation, having a matter rightfully called before the court, and assigning an individual some sort of culpability, if it can be proven.
0: And so therefore, really, on truly images, it can't be withheld. There's no, there's no obligation of the police um, to release or, or, or claim, I mean, obviously, pretrial publicity, as you said.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. There, is, there is no such thing.
0: Yeah, and yeah, there's no such thing. <laughs> there, yeah. is, there is no yeah. such thing that you Indeed. have a right
1: to. footage. Yes. understood.
0: understood. Uh, Farid, Farid, we, 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 we have to wrap up, right? We have to wrap up now. Yes. Um, however, if you, if you want to say anything, quickly. Um, and of course, I think we, we have to come back again yeah. to, to further this discussion.
1: I, I think that the public needs to be aware that we, we live in some reckless times in Toronto the criminality that we, we are facing on a day-to-day basis is, is serious criminality. Uh, We have to put trust in the police. We have to put trust in the processes and not take the law into our own hands. And I think we are safe in terms of the work that the judiciary and the magistracy has been doing and the input by way of improved legislation from the Attorney General's office. The marriage of law of that augurs well for the future. Yeah.
0: And, and of course, I mean this is, this is a, uh, I mean, this is an educational talk as well, yes. right? Um, so the public can be fully aware as to these processes. So thank you very much for reading. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Uh, again, guys, it's a wrap. Um, so you have been watching Strictly Legal on WESN. I am your host, Rhonda Donnell. See you next time. I will leave you with a quote. The best preparation for tomorrow is doing your best today. Have a good day. God bless.